You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who has authority, not as the scribes. And immediately, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. I remember in the early 2000s, I would come here, and there would be one of those preachers that would be here who had the gift of delivering people from demonic spirits. And he would always say, if you're not right with God, you should leave the room. Because when the spirit comes out, he's going to want to find a place. And I'd be out. I'd be the first one out. I would do two things during those services. I would either pretend to be taking notes. So when the prophet walked by, he would be like, oh, that's a diligent young man right there. Or I'd volunteer to help out in the balcony where all the sinners went. Or just be sick that day. (laughs) Samson has made his presence known as a jokester at Salem Tabernacle, everybody. I'm going to ground them. We're not going to cast out demons today. Uh, If we were going to, it would be these two. But one of the things that they say after Jesus removes this demon is they say this. They see the man delivered from a demonic spirit, and their response is, what amazing teaching. It's interesting. They didn't say, what a powerful prayer that released that. They said, what an amazing teaching. And so there's, there is an anointing to lay hands on somebody and have them be delivered from the spirits of addiction, anger, depression, anxiety, Lust, those kinds of things, yes? But there's something else that happens in the teaching that exercises other forms of spirits that are in us. And so when we preach on Sunday, the reason why I get nervous every single Sunday to preach, and people say, do you still get nervous? Of course I do. And the reason is because this, the worship service that we just did, the table that we're going to come to, the teaching that is about to be done, all of these things have in them the power of life and death. They're not normal. They're not, it's not a TED talk. It's not a concert. It's something that ministers to the powers and principalities around us. And the more delivered we get, the more delivered the world gets. The more we walk out of here free from stuff, the more the world walks out of here free from stuff because we are priests. And whatever happens to priests happens on behalf of the world around them. We're going to 
show up. We're going to work harder. You know what's probably going to happen? We're probably going to be like those laborers in the vineyard who are like, we worked all day. We're getting paid the same as people who just showed up. And God's going to be like, you're the reason why they were able to just show up because you've been working all day. That's good work that we're doing. The title of this sermon, which is going to be very different and brisk, is our new slogan for our church that will stand the test of time, Salem Tabernacle, becoming human through the love of Jesus. This is what we're about here. Jacqueline and I can honestly and concisively land the plane and say, while we have the assignment to pastor this church, this is our goal, is to ourselves and with all of you be taught how to live a truly human, sober life. A life that feels what it's supposed to feel when it's supposed to feel it. A life that feels bad when it's supposed to feel bad. A life that feels good when it's supposed to feel good, and a life that can feel good and bad at the same time when both of those things are happening. That's what it means to be sober. It means to not be high on things that make you feel good when you should feel bad and feel bad when you should feel good. We want to feel the way we're supposed to feel when we're supposed to feel it multiple times over because that's what it means to be human. David can say of Jesus, he was anointed with joy above all of his brethren. And Isaiah could say he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And they're not in competition with each other. Jesus was always joyful and always acquainted with grief because he was human. And humans don't have to make decisions between emotions. We can feel it all because God is expanding our hearts and the real estate of our soul to be able to handle more things. So what I want to do today, and this is very different, I, we, I don't think we've, I've ever taught this way before, I want to review the last three weeks, and after each review, short review, the worship team is going to play, and you can sit there and close your eyes, and we will have some points on the screen for each review, and it's just a chance for us to pray and ask God for the grace to live into that thing that we're reviewing. So this is still kind of part of the worship service in some ways. And so last week, we talked about do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. First thing, God desires holy form and holy passion. There are times where we are doing the right thing, but it's passionless. We're parenting the way we're supposed to parent. We're working the way we're supposed to work. We're living the Christian life the way we're supposed to live it. That's great, but there's no passion behind it. And we just, we feel, we feel stuck in it. We feel rote in it. Then there's other times where we're completely passionate and ready, but we feel like we're always cleaning the slate and starting over. I'm going to, Monday comes, I'm going to get it right this week. I'm excited. Nope. Tuesday, I'm going to get it right this week. Nope. Thursday, ah, I, just, I just don't think it's going to happen. Saturday night, I'm going to wake up on Sunday, start fresh, wake up Sunday. Satan shows up late to church. This is terrible. And it's like, you know what, we're going to start again. And it's like there's passion, but you can't get the form together. And it feels like in our own body, we go back and forth between those two things. We either have the right form and no passion or the right passion and no form. Here's the thing. God wants to fuse those two. That's what it means to be human. He wants to fuse those two things in us. How do we do that? We observe his passion corporately through the, the, through the liturgical year and personally through our devotions. Every day of your life, you should close your eyes and look at the cross. Because what did we say? We said his passion and his actions are the exact same thing. For me, 
What I want and what I do are not the same thing. Anybody else? Yeah. Frankie, yes. Oh, we never got you a seat. I'm sorry. Oh, it's all right. That's why, that's why he, just, he just, he wanted me to notice that I failed him. I'm sorry, Franco. Observe his passion. When we come here, we come here for one reason, to see Jesus and him crucified. That's why we come here. We come here for one reason, to know that Christ died for us and rose again. So every time we come to church, we're seeing his passion. But I'm telling you, you want to fuse those two realities? Also at home, you need to be seeing his passion in the Bible. You need to be seeing his passion in prayer. And you need to be seeing his passion in the way that we serve other people. What will that do? It will open to us. How's that a joke? How's that even a joke? I don't know. You got right passion, no form. Tim just showed us passion and form. That's good. Are you going to, you're not going to sit in this? Well, you're, you're about to play in a second. All right, let's pull it together. Let's pull it together. Let's pull it together. What does this process do? This process opens us to our excessive potential which is one thing that I think we are struggling to see these days is how much potential you have in any given moment of your life. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you're going through, you can have the right form and the right passion by looking up and seeing Jesus crucified for you. And that won't just give you a burst of good feeling, but it will remind you that on your worst, most failed day, you have more potential in you than you could ever ask or think. And he will unlock it to the extent that we will use it wisely. You don't give children power tools because they will hit their sisters with them. When we can handle it wisely, he will unlock our potential. That's what he wants for you. He wants you to wake up tomorrow and realize if nothing changed in your life, the change happening in you can make your whole world different. So let's pray and meditate on that for a few minutes. That's just such a powerful line. His wounds have paid my ransom. Imagine being injured because of what somebody else did because you love them that much. That's what's got to motivate us. That's, that's the only thing that can motivate us. And then the first sermon in this series was dealing with contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And we talked about cheerful giving. We talked about tithing. And we talked about hospitality not just being, everybody say not just, not just being opening our homes, which is what hospitality is, but also opening up our attitudes to be able to be the kinds of people who can receive and find joy in people who look different, act different, and live different than we do. That may be one of the core strengths of this church is being able to do that. But when you find what your deepest gifts are, you also know where the enemy's going to attack you every day. Every day. We have to have a restored view of the material world. 
And if I had to say in one sentence, one imperfect sentence, what does a restored view of material look like? Houses, cars, clothes, dollar bills, $20 bills, if you got it like that, like something, you know? What does it look like? A restored view of material looks like the reality that you serve it, but you don't look for it to serve you. So many of us are looking for our next accomplishment, our next home, our next wardrobe, our next raise, our next car to serve us and push us to the life that we've always wanted to have. But they're not servants. They're taskmasters when seen the wrong way. The material world, including each other, is our opportunity to serve it, to take care of creation, to steward our money, to steward our homes, so that those things can be used in the service of Christ and his people. When I look to the material world to serve me, I isolate myself, and I begin to see, and you've heard me say this before, I begin to see people as either assets or liabilities. I begin to see people as either the ones who can get me to where I have to go or the ones keeping me from where I want to be. See, and, and, and when we have the wrong view of the material world, when we wake up and we look in the mirror and hate what we see, let's start there. When I hate what I see, it's materialism. Because when I look in the mirror, I don't see the real, that's not the real gift looking back at me. The real gift is who I am, not what I'm seeing in that reflection. When I taught my very first, is actually my very, very first sermon ever in this church, I was an assistant youth pastor, and Dan Underhill gave me two mirrors. One mirror was not broken, and the other mirror was smashed to pieces. And he said, I want you to talk to the kids about which mirror is easiest to look into. And he was surprised at what I said. Didn't let me preach for like another two years. Look at me now. No. Um, <laughs> I said the hardest mirror to look into is the one that's not broken. Because when I look into the one that's shattered, I could say, ah, the only reason I look bad is because the mirror is broken. But when you look in an actual mirror that's not broken and you don't like what you see, there's no excuses. That is. And what's happening in those moments is we're getting materialistic. We're looking at the outward tent that I'm temporarily inhabiting and missing the gift because I'm looking at the material. You're so much more than what you look like and what you see in the mirror. You're so much more of a gift than that. And so we need a restored view of the material. We need to realize that the material is housing something so much more brilliant than what you're seeing. That's what the sacraments are. It's just bread and it's just juice until we pray over it. And then inside of that material, something far more precious is happening. It's just water from Beacon that goes into that baptismal tank until we bless the water on baptism Sundays. And then it becomes the Jordan River. Yes? It's just rings and it's just vows until you say them at an altar with a minister and a congregation. And all of a sudden, those just rings and those just words become the binding sacrament until death do us part. It's just grass, it's just dirt, it's just trees until you realize that inside of it, as David says, creation cries out the glory of God. We need a renewed, we need a renewed view of the material so that we don't use it so that we can worship with it, offer it, bless it. So what do we have to do? We have to comb through our life 
and assess, we always talk about our budgets, we need to comb through our life and assess our attitude budget. Some of us are really, really good at one or the other. We're really good at assessing our attitude budget and our financial budget is whack, or vice versa. We have our money and our budgets all perfect. We got numbers in Excel spreadsheets and da-da-da, color-coded this. And then we get into the car and hate the first person we see on the road. Right off the bat. Right off the bat. The worship team behind me is having trouble with that one, I can see. Man. So we need to comb through our life and take an assessment of our attitude. What makes me annoyed that shouldn't? Where would Jesus be peaceful around people and I'm in angst and anger around those people? And we also need to comb through our actual budget because there's nothing that ties us to the material more than money does, period. There's nothing that ties us to the material more than money does. We have become defined Our life is as good as the money we have. So why do we offer our money? Because we're made in the image of God and he's generous. We offer our money not to get something but to say thank you for what he's already done. And we offer our money to continue Christ's mission in the earth. And it's every time I open my mouth about money, I can feel the tension. But like always... Anything that you're supposed to do can get so attacked and so misused that you end up not wanting to talk about it anymore, and then the devil wins. Just because people have misused and manipulated giving in the church doesn't mean it's something we're not supposed to talk about. If we stop talking about it, we lose. We just have to have the courage to attempt to talk about it the right way. Amen? And what Jacqueline and I want for us in terms of tithing, all we want in terms of money at all, is do it if it's joyful. And if it's not joyful, talk to somebody who gives joyfully and have them pray with you. We don't want obligation dollars ever because they're not real dollars. Joyful dollars are real dollars, and then, then we know what we actually have and what we can bless our community with. Amen? So it's uncomfortable to talk about it, but it has to be talked about. Be also because when we can't part with our money, we are, we are as good as the material around us. And guess what? The material around us is passing away. Just tell my right foot. (laughs) The material around us is passing away. If we're rooted in the material, we're always going to be passing away with time. But when we can offer it and have a renewed view of it, our our eternal reality can outlast the material around us. Let's pray and meditate on that. And finally, the short version of what we were going to talk about today in its entirety, the final section of our verse for the year is rejoice, be patient, and pray. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and pray constantly or pray without ceasing. What does this mean for us? Rejoice in hope not in actual or forecasted outcomes. Our rejoicing should never be rooted in results. We could be happy about results. We can be excited about results. But the core of our rejoicing has to be in the hope 
that Jesus is not done being God yet with the world around us. My favorite preacher of all time, you all know him, Dr. Chris Green said this, our only hope is that God is not done being God yet. That he has more God things to do in the world. If he's done being God, then this is the best it's ever going to be. But he's not done being God yet. He still has more God being to be. And sometimes our anxiety tells us how things are going to end up. It tells us how things are going to end up only because we understand how the past works. I need you to hear me, Salem. No matter what, our forecasted thoughts of how something is going to end up can only be rooted in what we understand about the past. It's like trying to come up with a color that you've never seen before. You can't. You can only come up with combinations of colors that you have seen. We don't know the future yet the same way we don't know a color that we haven't seen. We can only forecast based on what we understand. And that's where anxiety comes from. That's where false security on the one hand comes from and anxiety comes from on the other hand. We have to let the future be open to hope. Hope means that there's evidence for me to believe that something great is going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. But let the gospel inform your hope, not your thoughts about the past. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. And let the gospel of Jesus Christ inform that hope. That's why he can say, be patient in tribulation. If we're rejoicing in hope, we can be patient in tribulation. Why? Because patience is knowing that you the situation, and another person that may be causing your situation are still in development. Patience is knowing that you, the situation you're in, and the people that you're dealing with are still in development. And here's the good news of the gospel. You ready? The grave, which until Jesus was the evidence of the end. Yes? Is now something that is still in development. The grave is not the grave as it used to be. Something is now developing in death that is changing not only what it is, but what it does. And so the grave is no longer a conclusive reality. When you lose a loved one, the loss of that loved one is still a developing situation because hope says, I'm going to see you one day. I'm going to see you one day, and we are going to rejoice in what God has done in the grave, yes? So the grave is still a developing situation. If that's true, then so is your job. If that's true, then so is your health. If that's true, then so is your self-esteem. If that's true, then so is your marriage. If that's true, then so are your kids, and so is your education, and so is your view on life, and so is Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and everything else. It's a developing situation. Don't act like it's done. If it went well, don't act like it's done. If it went bad, don't act like it's done. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Nothing is done until Jesus comes and says for the final time, it is finished. But he won't say it again until we are finished with him. And those two realities, rejoicing in hope and letting that give us a patience and a settledness that says, if the things I'm working on right now do not work out, 
I'm not going to keep pressing and pushing and forcing it and making it happen and acting like every delay is from God when he's just trying to say, stop. I'm talking to 22 of you in the room that I know. Somebody says, were you talking about me? If you're asking, yes, I'm talking about you just now on that little riff. It's not in my notes. I just saw some people in the room and said, let me talk about them. Some are, some are just pointing to themselves right now. <laughs> But when we can get over that obsession with making things happen for ourselves, we can pray constantly. And what is praying constantly? Let me tell you what it's not so we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Praying constantly is not talking to God in your head constantly. Thank you, Jesus. Because not even monks can do that effectively. And all they do is pray. The only person I know that actually prays without ceasing, the only two people I know <laughs> that actually pray without ceasing, maybe Bill and Lena Bernasconi, but besides them, and everyone in this room has gotten blessed because they don't stop talking to God, every single one of us, forever. Right now, Stuart Walker's like, I've been trying to get them to pray less, and you just gassed them up again, and now they're going to keep on praying like crazy. Praying constantly is God inviting you to realize that everything you do in your life is prayer. I didn't pray today. Did you get the kids ready for school? You prayed. I didn't pray today. Did you go to work and do your best? You prayed. I didn't pray today. Did you get dressed in the morning and clean up the house? You prayed today. Everything we do, the problem with prayer is that we only see it in one category, me stopping everything and talking to God. That's one way to pray, and it's a vital way to pray because it sets the stage for me realizing that God is talking to me in every single thing that I do in a day. And so when you realize that, there is nothing happening in your life that is not communication with the divine himself. Not one thing. Everything you do, but also after the clapping is done, that should scare us a little bit. Because that means that when I talk to my coworkers, God's going to say, this is how you're talking to me. When I wake up to that messy house, the first three things I say to myself, that's how I'm talking to God. Emoji face. When we can rejoice in hope and have that birth patience in us saying, there is nothing or anyone in your life that God is done with you're still an evolving situation. That can make us realize that everything we do is permeated with God's presence. Specifically, talking to people who are home all the time while your spouse is out working, and you say, I don't have any time to pray. You have no idea how much you're praying. To those stuck at work saying, oh my God, I just I used to work a nine to five. I used to be able to get up and pray in the morning and pray when I get home, and now it's crazy. You have no idea how much you're praying. I am not saying that we don't do those other things. But with those other things, the same way the Eucharist defines all of our meals, our devotionals, our Bible reading, our actual praying with hands folded and eyes bowed, they set the stage for all the other ways that we pray. If you want to pray without ceasing, it's realizing, it's waking up to the fact that everything we do in life is prayer. So the question isn't, are we praying? The question is, what kind of prayers are we praying? Are they prayers worthy 
to be emulated? What, what if God answered them? Would we be happy? Yeah. What if God answered your prayers and that car in front of you was evaporated off the face of the earth? You might be happy, but when you saw that person again, You know, let me just tell you something. I I will not go through details. But I just want you all to know, I'm joking with John, but he puts up with some stuff at his job that is despicable, what some people say to him at his job. And this dude is a shining light in a dark place. I just want you to know that. He talks to me about what people say to him and somehow, in the midst of all that, remains this happy, bubbly, semi-annoying human being. And it's because he rejoices in hope and he's patient in tribulation and he's learned that everything he does is prayer. And let's not forget that when we leave the church, when we leave our house, we are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think we have to regain what it means to be witnesses in the world. I think we've let a lot of it go because we've been in survival mode and that's okay. But as we're waking up from survival mode, I think we need to remember, when I go out, am I a representative of the one who dies for his enemies? Am I a representative of the one who works well? Am I a representative of the one who at night, when he was betrayed, didn't grumble or complain but gave thanks? Am I a representative of the one who, when he was looking at 10,000 people to feed and had a piece of bread in his hand, he never asked the Father for more, he just thanked the Father for what he has? Let's remember that we are witnesses to something. What are we witnessing to? What is our life revealing that we believe in most? As we get ready to come to the table, I'm going to have Jacqueline come up to pray. We can all stand to our feet. She's going to share some announcements with you because our service got a little crazy and we had to rework it. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.